Hi, Scott. Lovely to meet you. Um, I'm really delighted that you've um, that you said yes to having a chat with me about authenticity and um, being gay. Um, I wonder if you could tell people a little bit more about yourself before we kind of jump into some questions. Thank you. And uh, hello, Amy. My name is Scott Duraraj. Uh, I suppose uh, I'm, you know, you can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn for those people who do want to connect and and uh, keep the conversation going. I'm always uh, willing to do that. Something about me. Well, uh, I'm 30 years in the NHS now, started off as a paramedic, uh, but a bit more about who I actually am. Well, I was born on a very, very rough council estate. Uh, my father was from Sri Lanka. My mother was in, uh, from England. And uh, it was quite a tough time growing up in those uh, really si uh, bad sink schools, uh, sink estates. Uh, and I started in the NHS in 1991 as a paramedic and have worked uh, nationally, NHS England and regionally. And I now work in ICS as a director. Fantastic. Thank you. I think it's really important to hear some of your story and background because it helps contextualize some of the other things you might be saying in the future and for me personally it's also really important to hear that people have overcome all sorts of things to get to where they are now it's not a straightforward journey and more than just being part of the lgbtq community there's other stuff that plays out so the first question i've got for you is is, is about when you were approached to be part of this project and part of these podcasts, what, what made you think that it might be useful? Well, there's two things. I, I think authenticity and being LGBTQ plus uh, is really uh, a, a valid discussion to be having for leadership and the NHS because we have an individual responsibility, but we also have a collective responsibility of making um and enabling the organisations uh, for people to be themselves and be them whole selves. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's much more beyond particular language. It is about the culture we want to create. But I guess most importantly for me was to make sure the BAME LGBT intersectionality piece was brought to the fore. Often when we see LGBTQ+, it's a white image uh, mm -hmm. and it's a particular age and a particular profile and a particular class. And I really want to address all of that because that still leaves people on the outside. Uh, yeah. It still pe leaves people without an image for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I just felt like I, my story, my journey would add to some other people and may connect with people that otherwise may have been missed. Yeah, thank you. It definitely will resonate with people. And I think you're absolutely right that most of us have images of things, don't we? We make assumptions about stuff. And, and because we do put people in boxes, we we kind of almost forget that doing that, we marginalise more people. Whereas, you know, kind of embracing that centre of the Venn diagram is what you're talking about, isn't it? So my next question is about authenticity. And why do you think... Um, being authentic is so important as a leader. So authentic, uh, authenticity and uh, its critical nature really in leadership, I guess started with me not because of my sexual orientation, but my ethnicity, because it's what's most visible to people. Uh -huh. It's what they first see. So um, 
they don't see the sexual orientation and for many years being a six foot five mixed race uh, scouser, the first things they would assume uh, was, you know, uh, and they saw the name Duray Raj, they would assume, uh, you know, have I had an arranged marriage, you know, why aren't I married at a particular age and all of those things. Um, but authenticity for me has really been important because the lack of authenticity in leadership has led to the position we're in with growing health inequalities and growing workforce inequalities. So authenticity has a, a centralised piece within me. So it's helped know myself. And I think the first task and the transition over the years is I needed to really know myself to be happy both in work and at home. Um, I think being comfortable and confident to be myself always in work and in my leadership role. Uh, so challenging some of that status quo. Um, I recognise my impact on others and I now try, now I'm much more senior, I also try and help others recognise their impact, either through language, behaviour, discussion, et cetera, on others. I think it's also important kind of developing that appreciative inquiry as a bit of a norm, really, when you're engaging with people. So, you know, they're the kind of, the, the authenticity uh, around leadership and myself, and I guess, I think as I've developed more knowledge and uh, grown in my role and my responsibility, you know, I think it's about not just knowing myself, but really living and living to my purpose mm -hmm. and, and making sure that you model that for others. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's one of those things I think Michelle Obama said, when they go low, you go high. You know, mm -hmm. it's not to respond in an aggressive or attacking way. But to say, that's really interesting. Have you thought how that may make XYZ feel? Yeah. And walk people through it in a, a priest of inquiry way. I do have very strong values and I know them and I demonstrate them. So I do care about the LGBTQ plus population just as much as I care about refugees and asylum seekers. And yeah. of course, refugees and asylum seekers who may be LGBTQ. So... Mm -hmm. I think it's really important that we recognise probably one of the most racist places to be when I was younger was a gay club. Uh, they yes. were horrendous. Uh, people would assume being, again, uh, six foot five and mixed race. I would be usually the person they'd come over and ask, am I selling drugs, for instance? Being yeah. asked two or three nights in, in one, two or three times in one night out. Um, and then with the advancements of apps and things, you know, I've been reading that, you can then filter ethnicities and those kind of things. It's a really interesting conversation and actually recognising how tough that is for disabled LGBTQ people or BAME LGBTQ people because, you know, you've uh, battled uh, your own family identity sometimes and your family ambition like lots of people do. It can be stronger in certain cultures, of course, and then you get into what should feel like a community Mm -hmm. that often doesn't so I think that's also important so that's why some of the education I've done has been with LGBTQ people around the issues that BAME people face both on the scene but just in society as a general um, and that helps build interesting relationships and developing yes. the support network so again all that authenticity is not it's not a label or a checkbox I think it's a way of being yes. and it's about the sense of social justice, really, um, not just for 
you know, the hierarchical group. So for many years, I boycotted London Pride because actually there was a lot of racism within that organisation. There was a lot of racism allowed. You go to any drag act or drag show that was even around at Pride and they'd be telling kind of openly racist or, you know, um, casual racism that would be yeah. allowed out in those spaces. So, you know, but yeah, Black Pride instantly, interestingly, which is in London the day after Pride, you know, was hardly attended by any NHS organisation. It's changing now, hardly supported. So I used to go to Black Pride with my friends and actually as people started to know and like it, they they were preferring that than London Pride. Um, but that's that authenticity. And again, what sometimes happens and people in the LGBTQ uh, community will know this, that we see organisations a week before Pride putting the rainbow flags up. Yeah, a week we after, they couldn't care less what happens to no, us. Um, yeah. And it's a bit the same for me at Pride now. I haven't been to Pride for some time, apart from the fringe Pride, as I would call, because I think they need more support. Um, and I suppose it's just useful because I know the history. I spent the time to read the history when I realised I was gay. Yeah. Just slightly older, partly because of my upbringing, partly because of the environmental factors. I was slightly older than uh, many people. And, you know, I would have liked to have known younger. So my parents would have known. But um, it was one of those things that I knew about my ethnicity. I knew what that meant socially. Yes. So one of the things when I was having my own internal, internal battle around my sexual orientation, I engaged in was what's the history uh, yes. around LGBT? And once I read that, I could drew I drew the connections um, mm -hmm. to really help me know myself, but also know what I needed to do being both being or a mixed race yes. and uh, I, there was a job to do, and that's what I've tried to live. Yeah, thank you so much. That was it was so powerful listening to that, and I know that our listeners will also will also be inspired by it. I think there's a couple of things that really, really jumped out at me, which the first was a, about your passionate belief about a lack of boxes, a lack of pigeonholes, and this sense of marginalisation um, being all over the place, and that the intersectionality is so crucial that many, many people can be marginalised and can find themselves in situations where they fit several communities. Um, and that your sense of not wanting only to support LGBTQ or the BAME community, but asylum seekers, refugees, you know, people experiencing domestic violence and probably so many more. And that really, really has stuck with me. The second thing I think that really will stay with me about what you were saying it is that sense of of sense of wanting justice and and living your values you know not just not just saying them but standing by them and i guess my next question is this powerful voice that you have now how has how did that happen in terms of you being much younger so when you were trying to battle all of these things but you weren't as powerful you weren't as well read how did you navigate things then well i suppose that's why i started the conversation with giving you a bit of my family background so yeah. i remember in so i was born in 1971 uh, i should have said i've been with my partner now 20 years and we've been civil partner 10 um but 
when I was um, uh, in the mid 70s, you may remember there was a thing called apartheid in South Africa. And Barclays Bank was investing in an apartheid South Africa. And my dad uh, took me down as a toddler uh, and we protested, just me and him, outside his branch of, of Barclays Bank. And it was really interesting to see how the branch treated him, how the police treated him and me uh, at that time. Now, this was before all the big protests and the Free Nelson Mandela campaign and all of that. And, you know, I've always been involved in the protest movement, my dad and my family. Uh, but we also belong. My dad came from Sri Lanka or Salon, as it was called when he left. And he was always against capital punishment. So um, the, the school wanted to claim my brother. He'd been a victim of a racist incident. And after two or three years, he'd finally retaliated. And they wanted to cane him for retaliating to racism. And my father said, you can give him any punishment you want, but you're not caning him. And my dad took the government to the Court of Human Rights and yeah. was part of the, having the cane ban. So those values kind of moved forward to me with me. And when I was uh, in the ambulance service, when I was a student, we marched against Section 28, okay. uh, if you remember. So going back uh, to the cries of uh, in Manchester, we're here, we're queer and we're not going shopping. Uh, I remember them and, they're, you know, they're quite funny. And there was a sense of community. There was very few black people there, I have mm. to say. Um, that, you know, and again, it was just a shape of the times. Of course, you know, the HIV epidemic worked as a paramedic, uh, moving patients and hearing terrible language in the ambulance service. Um, yeah where a house that had a young gay people living in that had largely been kicked out from their families was being termed as nests, like you would term a nest of rats. Um, I remember, you know, very early in the 90s when I started, we were being told to, you know, put the face visors on, gloves up to our arms and not touch people really. And then we had to decommission an ambulance to clean them. All of that was part of, of my kind of, you know, uh, experience. But I remember um, we were picking a patient up who who had AIDS and he was going to hospice to die. And um, my, my colleague I was with wasn't particularly compassionate. And I I remember thinking, I was quite young, relatively new in the job, thinking, I've never been trained to deal with HIV. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, but I have with cancer. This guy's going into hospice. So I said, what photo, do you want some photographs? Do you want some... You know, and I spent some time and we took, collected some photographs. Uh, he'd asked for a, a jumper that was one of his uh, family members and those kind of things. We spent just a bit of time picking those stuff up. And, uh, you know, I remember that guy's face today doing sure. that, not knowing what to do, but knowing there was something else that you could do. And yes. I think there's a bit of a rule there that you might not always have the right words. You might not uh, always have... Uh, well, going back to my dad, my dad always used to say, you should speak truth to power, even if your voice shakes. So mm-hmm. he was scared. I was scared outside Barclays when the police came and they were a bit rough with my dad. He said, no, black people are suffering across the globe. I'm changing my bank account. We moved to Bank of Scotland as it was. Um, but we have to protest to make sure people know. And I think there's something there. There's lots of different ways of having your voice heard. And yes. um, I think reading some of the histories, I think... Sometimes it's if you're not brave enough to stop something that's going on, be there for the person that might be experiencing it, yes. uh, even afterwards. 
and you will find your voice. We all do. Yes. Uh, I've I've got a big size pair of twelves that I use quite a lot of the time now. And thankfully, actually, on LGBT issues, don't have to use that much. I have to say, mm. um, what I've experienced is I have to use them more over race than I do over sexual orientation now. But that won't be the same for everybody. No, no, for sure. Uh, and again, really, really powerful stories. Um, what touched me then was your sense of of humanity and compassion. And none of us are going to get our words right all the time. None of us are going to know how to tackle different situations. But we know that we're humans together and we do know what compassion looks like. Um, and I think that that's really touched me. So my last question for you, and I hear how you spent your whole life um, learning from your dad and your family about how to stand up and how to be heard even when you're scared. What advice would you give to, to younger people, particularly in their careers where things aren't as straightforward and they don't necessarily feel like they have a voice? What would you say to them now? So I think it's a journey. I think uh, being authentic is a journey. And I think, so understanding yourself, and I think when we talk about being LGBT, let's face it, they're themselves boxes. And sexual orientation yeah. is a spectrum. Um, you may not fit. You're not just lesbian, gay, bisexual. You'll also be a man, a woman, transgender, intersex, etc. which means we have to accept there's a rainbow there. So your experience won't be the same as somebody else's. Yes. So the most important thing is, who are you? What are your values? What's important to you? Once you've got those, start living them. Start living them. You will make the uh, quick mathematical judgments of when it's safe to live them in a workplace environment. So yeah. when people say, oh, have you got a girlfriend or a boyfriend, usually the opposite sex. You know, you will work out how to go. You know, you might start by just avoiding the question. And in the end, you go, you're asking me the wrong question. And you make a joke <laughs> out of it, you know. Um, but finding yourself is the start of that. And then living it is the second step. I think linking it to your strong values and then you need to demonstrate them. Yes. You need to move forward to demonstrating your values in everything you do. So whether you're, you know, 20 years of age, you're doing your... Um, Med, med degree or whatever and you're in university you know remember every instant you let go you have approved you know yes. I by not saying something either at the time or afterwards or even speaking to the person that may have been the recipient or the victim or you may have been and it's a recognition if you let the comments go and this is all that balance of safety but if you let them go in a work environment they become the most cancerous thing about you because yes. it hurts that you let it go. You argue with yourself because you didn't live your values. So, again, you sometimes have to forgive yourself. You have to pick your fights and your judgments. Develop trust in relationships and, you know, making sure if there is an LGBTQ network, does everybody look like you? Does everybody sound <laughs> like you? Who's missing? Yeah. Spend the time to find who's missing. It's yeah. going to be harder. The deaf, the disabled, people yeah. with mental health conditions, people who look more like me um 
been recognizing their challenges as well. So, you know, uh, for me, I spent years not seeing, never seen anyone black and gay on TV. And it's only really in the last probably five or six years, black gay characters that not stereotypical yeah. uh, have started appearing on the TV. And now at the moment with, you know, uh, the strictly you start seeing someone who's black and you see, see gay couples dancing and it's normal and emo it's about the emotion, not anything different. And I think it's helping. But in your LGBT networks and your friend networks, think about could you be richer by knowing more people? And I think um, try and develop your self-discipline. You will get to a stage where you can really hold down the emotional reaction so LGBT discrimination, like racism, it, it's a structure and it will be with you for life. And you'll be yeah. telling your kids, like I tell my kids, I adopted two kids, and you'll be telling them how to deal with racism, how to deal with homophobia. But what you've got to do is take the emotion out of it. And you've got to um, guide other people through it in a calm and educated way. And I think, as I said earlier, Michelle Obama said, um, you know, when they go low, you go high. And I think that's the time to do it. And also it's less cancerous to you as an individual. Don't own other people's hate, other people's discrimination. And then the last, I suppose, is a bit like a mission is act from the heart, which is what I've always tried to do. Um, and don't leave people behind. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure talking with you and hearing your insights um i feel really inspired and i'm very grateful that you've taken the time today thank you scott no thank you for opportunity amy